0: Welcome to the Race, Ride, Seek podcast. Uh, This is episode nine. Um, I'm Jesse Carlson. I'm here at the Virtual Curve Shed. We're going to move over to Maker Cafe shortly. Um, But in the meantime, feel free to relax, kick back, grab yourself your beverage of preference. Um, If I had a chance right now, I'd probably grab um, a Moondog Jump the Shark 14.4% IPA. Um, But anyway, grab your own choice of beverage and sit back and relax and settle in. Today we've got uh, a very special podcast. We sat down with Kevin Benkenstein, Benke, after Race to the Rock. Kevin was the second place finisher behind the remarkable, the irrepressible Sarah Hammond. Um, And this was Benke's first attempt at anything of this, this length. He came all the way up from South Africa. Uh, to give this this thing a shot, um, his passion for the race, his enthusiasm was incredible. He had a fantastic cause, Quebecer, that he was riding for as well. Um, something that I really I really believe in, and I um, think it's a it's a remarkable remarkable cause. Bikes definitely do change life and we'll, lives, and we'll hear Benke talk a little bit about that too. Um, so settle in and listen to what Benke has to say.
1: Okay, we're here in uh, Maker Cafe a few days after Race the Rock with um, the one and only Benki. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> um, a pleasure. So, how are you feeling a few days after this monumental achievement?
2: Uh, right now, I'm feeling tired and hungry. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> can I can alternate between sleeping lying down and eating it's about all that I'm good for right now I try to break up my day midday break of going riding although today now that's included food as well so I've never experienced hunger like this or just the ability to sleep anywhere at any time like literally within a minute of deciding it's time to sleep I can sleep and that whether it's 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. it doesn't matter and so
1: what's been your biggest um, eating mission since you've finished
2: Oh my word, that hotel buffet. I think I had breakfast non-stop for two hours on the second day after the race. In fact, Jesse's mom left, and I said, no, it's cool, I'm just going to the bathroom. I went to the bathroom, I came back, and I just had breakfast again. Like I just couldn't stop. It was, there was too much choice, and I had to get through all of it. And I just discovered uh, hash browns with Camembert in the middle, thanks to Jessie and Sarah it was just that's pretty untouchable after 12 days in the desert so i'd say that that was that was it well breakfast every day is a, a sight to behold a few bowls of oats and way too many apples
1: <laughs> so you've um you finished race to the rock first man to complete race to the rock <laughs> um, how how was the experience just looking back on it overall it's
2: the experience of race to the rock that almost hard to explain, it's just, it's so out of body, um, the beginning, the first few days were pretty stereotypical, like adventure, backpacking, touring, like, I don't want to say it wasn't special, but because you were early in the race, and you were still fresh, and the, there was always something going on, it was, it was almost, just, your standard what I, I feel like most people can go out and experience mm-hmm. but really really hard because that Mandabidi trail it's not a two meter wide track through some trees it's proper mountain biking mm-hmm. if I went back there just for a normal ride I would take a full suspension it's it's full on um, so those first few days were just hard work we just climbed and climbed and climbed and lots of it on switchbacks and broken uh I call it broken trail because the trail really didn't have much uh, much to it other than us navigating on our garment. And then from about 900Ks onwards, the stretches just got longer and longer and longer. And so progressively, progressively you were more alone. Initially you were alone by yourself and then you became alone. From the world, because you, were, you weren't close to any town, you weren't close to any people. There were, especially the first stretch um, from effectively Westonia to Menzies, which was about 400 kilometres. There was a little town called Billfinch, which the less we say about it, the better. <laughs> um, more of a scrappy than a town, but after that there were a couple of intersect or like crossroads where there was some mines but that was about it so you really were you were on the road from nowhere to nowhere with nothing around you and no reason for tourists mm. on the great central road there was a reason for tourists mm. but I don't I think I had three tourists pass me in the entire stretch from Bullfinch to Mentis mm. it was really alone it was the first time I'd personally experienced that sort of thing. I remember being about halfway, and just like starting to convince myself that there were people around me. I started talking to people. I think I was a little bit dehydrated. <laughs> Let's not pretend. But um, I'd convinced myself that there were other people riding with me, just to mentally deal with it. So I think that was that was quite a unique experience. And then once you're in the outback, it's just it's just such a foreign environment to us. All the, the terrain was so rough mm. so unforgiving you had to constantly be on it constantly concentrating searching for the line that didn't exist um, and just making sure you stayed on top of it because it was so easy just to back off and just not put in any effort mm. and then your days just get longer your trip gets longer mm. and you really had to just keep going keep going it was beautiful as well I mean that's I think that's what's really stuck with me in the last few days. It was beautiful in, in loads of ways. One being alone. So being alone is difficult in one sense, but it's beautiful in this other sense. You there's nothing to ruin the experience. There's no talking, there's no a lot of the time, especially at night, there are no cars, there are barely any animals. It, you really get taken every um, every little sound and sight and your, your senses are so heightened because there is no, no company um, and I don't even listen to music because when I tried, it made me fall asleep, so <laughs> I found out that Warren G is actually a lullaby singer, um, <laughs> which, yeah, don't put on regulate when you're tired, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, that was pretty awesome for me, I think. I remember being there at night, I, remember I was tired. I just lay down for like a 10 minute nap on the side of the road. I remember looking up and just everywhere around me was stars. Normally when you're in the city, there's like a patch of stars over there. It was just 360 degrees. It was, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. You could see every star just bright, bright, bright. It was, yeah, that was, that was really cool. And then the sunrises and sunsets, I just, I was well with the red dust and I remember the moon rising and it was just, every night it was just red because of all the dust in the, in the air and in our shoes. Um, but yeah, that was, that was pretty phenomenal. Midday, I don't have too much good to say, <laughs> gotta be honest that was just hot and sweaty and headwindy windy and actually we had a tailwind most of the time to be honest, but we then got an awesome headwind for the last couple of days. Um, So I think, yeah, I think the one thing I take out of the experience is that there's always good, but also that you can overcome anything. I think probably for all of us, even Jesse and Sarah, the thought of doing 400 kilometers, truly unsupported between services, not 400 kilometers between towns with the service halfway, you know, it it was 320, 400 kilometers completely alone, looking after yourself and making sure you've got the food, you've got the water. Mm. That To know that you can overcome that, and that you can actually manage that, and, and manage that mentally, which is much bigger than the physical management, I think that's a pretty cool experience to have in the back. I feel, uh, I feel quite silly now about my desire to stop after 80 kilometers early on the race. I feel like uh, a lot of time was wasted, but uh, yeah, you live and learn and, and that was a unique experience.
1: So you're talking about some beautiful experiences out there, the night nice sky and so on. Any other any other images come to mind when you look back on the, the race?
2: <laughs> I think, actually, it's about two, a positive experience and a negative experience. So a positive experience for me was all the people. So, Funnily enough, that's also the negative experience, but 99% of the people that we met out there were just amazing. Whether it was a tourist we stopped on the road, begging for water, or just someone to talk to, because you have been alone for like 20 hours and you just wanted to hear a human voice. Like, they were just also friendly and interested and concerned and really just frightened at what we were doing. But um, it was amazing how, how willing people were just to tell us what was coming up. You know, I remember at the beginning of the last, half, say the last 240Ks, uh, I stopped a car and I really just wanted to say, you know, what's coming up. And the guy basically gave me like a K by K description of this is what the road's like. And even though that wasn't a good description, it's just amazing how how willing people were to help. Mm. Um, and I found in all the times people wanted to you know, asked us all of a sudden, you know, you, you speak to a tourist, the next thing that, you know, they're a dot watcher. <clears throat> and they've got it on their iPad or whatever it may be. And they, they're talking about the race. Wow. And I mean, we had people ride out to us, yeah. uh, near Wolverton, um, Bobby and Owen. You know, all of a sudden, Owen appears in the dark. I had this light shining at me, and I thought, what the hell, there's a car with one light. Yeah. Then I realized that it was a cyclist. And you get the offer, hey, would you like a Coke? Do you want a banana? and it's like 11 p.m. at night and he has this guy who's taking the time to ride 10 k's out of town just to say what's up mm. and then welcomed us into the roadhouse or for myself welcomes me into the roadhouse when it's closed mm. the shop's closed and you know gives you a cup of tea and just something to make you feel a bit better about mm. the 240 k's that you've got coming up you know really makes your life a lot easier mm. um, and then funny story uh, a bit negative, but pretty funny. So, just about 80 k's into the, the, the first long stretch from Westonia to, to Menzies. There's a little town called Billfinch, which since their hotel closed, and they've, all they've really got is some houses with a scrap heap outside each. They all have their own scrap heap. It's very cute. Um, I think that's where the kids play. <laughs> and then there is a post office bin i noticed that but uh i was i was standing outside the hotel the old hotel because there were some lights there I'm trying to just my we, my front brake was bugged from uh, from some mud earlier in the day so i was just trying to get it sorted the next thing a car comes up so i could see the guys weren't quite up to any good so i just it back in and uh, got pedaling. next thing the guy's saying Get out of that town, we don't need people like you here. So, it gives, gives me a little bit of a scare, so I sprinted off. When I was about 500 meters further on, <laughs> I look back and these guys are coming at me. So, I turned my lights off as quickly as possible, fumbling with, luckily my hands were still hands. Um, but this guy's like coming, like he's looking for me. So, I decided, no, I'm, I, lights are off. I just veer straight into the bushes. I had, hide behind a bush with my bike. I think, no, this is the most ridiculous thing that's ever happened. Anyway, they, they come past and they're shouting, and they've got these four big lights on top of their, their truck. Like uh, like real, just living up to some stereotypes. Anyway, so they they go past me and uh, I think, okay, well, that's cool. All of a sudden I realize, well, that's the only way out. That's the way we're going out of town. So if they're that way, I'm not going that way <laughs> until they come back. So I sat tiny behind a bush, like a scared little child, for a good 45 minutes um, until they came back past and I felt like, okay, cool, I can, I can get out of here. Which, um, yeah, that was, that was an interesting experience. But that also meant that I had I, intended, I, I assumed, now you're going into a town, that you'd be able to get some water. So as you do when you know you're about to fill up with water, I drank a lot of my water. So, I, and I hadn't filled up my camel bags yet. So I was expecting to fill up with about five or six litres in that time. Instead, I filled up with none, um, which was fine. You know, I, I had made some assumptions. I thought, oh, we'll see. Once the daylight comes, I'll see cars. But I thought rather than um, rather than get too self-confident on that, I'd uh, I'd just sip very slowly on my water. It was nighttime, not very hot, don't need too much. Anyway, I realized after about three, four hours riding on this road that there wasn't a whole lot of reason for people to be on there. So I slipped a little bit slower but I, I started having these thoughts that like, what if I have to go 300k's without water? So I felt the urge to pee uh, and I had this amazing brainchild that maybe that was gonna be my savior. So I peed in a bottle <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was pretty convinced that that was, that was going to go down, that was, that was going back inside. But uh, yeah, thankfully, thankfully just as daylight came, I, I, I hit the first of the mine crossings. And as I was getting there, a truck was coming across and I, I stopped them and they had about half a, they probably had two, three hundred miles for me, which they gave me and I put in one of the bottles. And I asked them what, if anything was coming up and they said, no, in about ten kilometres, there's another one and there'll be, there'll be some guys there who can help you. So I was still a little bit hesitant, so the the pee stayed in the bottle. But luckily, when I got to that next mine crossing, um, I was I was saved, and I could I could empty the bottle of my of of pee and, and yeah, top it up. I never I never had to go full bear girls, although bear girls would have drunk the pee before the water. Um, I I was saved I was saved from myself, literally. So that was a pretty interesting stretch. I think that. That stretch to Menzies, that was more or less the most interesting, probably the most difficult. I think just because it wasn't the hardest in terms of terrain, the road actually wasn't so bad. Um, But because it was the first one and the first time we'd gone that far, Mm. uh, that and for me, I mean, that was like completely beyond anything I'd ever done before. Just to ride 400Ks, Mm. you know, man alone, just look after yourself. That was probably the biggest one. So, you, the amount I learned in that 400K, I can't, I can't put a value on that because I learned how to eat properly, I learned how to drink properly, I learned how to manage resources in terms of energy and food and water. Yeah. Um, I learned how to pack a bike. You, you learn all these things all of a sudden. When I got to Menzies, my bike was significant, it was lightened quickly because I realized I had a whole lot of stuff with me that I did not need. So, anything cheap that was on my bike got thrown away. Um, some expensive stuff came in for the full journey Mm. but yeah that was that was quite a cool stretch quite interesting some good experiences
1: i was thinking that stretch was going to be i I put that in the the route without any fanfare at all a lot of people were thinking about the great central road and so on Mm. and that was that's very remote don't get me wrong but i always like to put in a bit of a qualifier section before that Mm. so and that's really just to try to build confidence so that you know, if you get through that, you can go, you know what, I can do this. And then you get into this, the stretch that you were thinking was gonna be seriously remote um, with with a bit more confidence. You know, in your equipment and in your mental approach and your, uh, I guess, the food and all that sort of thing, you know you can do it. So it sounds like that, that kind of worked.
2: Yeah, I think that stretch to me is, in terms of my approach to the rest of the race, it gave me a chance to work some things out. Um, you know, in terms of how often to eat, how much to hydrate, mm. um, especially once I actually had water. Um, also just how to pace myself, what I could, what I felt I could manage, how to manage the mental approach. So when I started breaking it down into hours, because um, I found managing an hour was much easier than managing a couple hundred Ks. Mm. Um, and how did you, what did you, uh, um, what did you eat
1: when you're out there? How did you survive on, you know, there's, there's not, the usual, not the usual sort of nutrition that you'd expect in these bike races. Um, how did you
2: survive? I would say 90% of my diet was chocolate bars and white bread. Um, yeah, I think that, that's actually about it. I remember having a chicken burger somewhere along the way. I can't remember the town's name right now. Uh, and I had pancakes and ice cream. That was, that was pretty good, but yeah, most of the time it was just uh, white bread with cheese and Vegemite. Um, that, was, that was my staple, um, as well as Snickers bars, Mars bars, KitKat Chunkies and Monkey Bars. So you said so, the scene
1: for us, like you get to a, this, this town, there's only a roadhouse there, right? And tell me what you'd do, you, you get there having
2: ridden you know,
1: a couple of hundred Ks, and what would you do?
2: Actually, yeah, the worst one for me was Laverton. So I got there, I'd, I'd obviously messed up my research a little bit. I thought that the supermarket closed at six, it actually closed at five. So I got there at Hoppers Five, of course. And only the takeaway was open, which was sort of okay. But the takeaway, um, they obviously had like chicken burgers and some chips. So I had chicken burger and some chips, which was good. That was a nice supper. And then, um, but now takeaway doesn't exactly sell bread and chocolates you know I found out they certainly don't sell cheese or Vegemite so yeah I mean there as an example I bought two loaves of white bread um, I turning 20 K's coming up so I bought about I want to say 10 picnic bars and I didn't have anything to put on the um, on the white bread so I just ate plain white bread which was, you can imagine, so now I had 320 k's ahead of me. About 280 k's into that, I was pretty tired of plain white bread. Um, So I made a bread sandwich with a slice of bread in the middle. So I'd have three slices. That's what I allowed myself, was three slices of bread every hour, um, alternating with a lunch bar, a picnic bar, so that I could really just have some variety in my life. But generally, you get to a roadhouse, so you'd buy, you know, most of them did have white bread, chocolate bars, cheese, and Vegemite. So I've never wasted so much Vegemite in my life because in the beginning I had a tube, but then the tube ran out and I had to buy a, a jar of it. And I just, I don't know why I couldn't bring myself to carry a jar to the next roadhouse. I decided I was on the Jesse and White approach, approach. I just couldn't. So you'd waste the Vegemite, but... You basically sit there outside a, outside a roadhouse, sitting on the floor, half cross-legged, with like maybe some dry bags on, on the floor in front of you. And I'd be, I'd take my, my spork and I'd I'd spork out some uh, some Vegemite and put it between a slice of uh, a piece of sliced cheese and I'd squash the sliced cheese together and then I'd squash the sa- the, the bread around it and then that was and then you basically just squash that and then put it in a feed bag as small as possible which was amazing because when you take, you take out your sandwich but it's actually just a rolled up piece of like bread and cheese and Vegemite that looks like it's in form once it's inside you um, already it looks like you're trying to trick a dog to take a pill like that's basically, basically what you end up with Alternatively, um, if you have a, a chocolate bar because it's 38 degrees and it's sitting in a feed bag it's actually chocolate sauce so you basically i would make like a little slit on the top and then i'll just put the uh, this sounds horrendous i put about half the chocolate bar in my mouth and just pull like close your teeth and just pull and then you've got like the chocolate sauce in, in your mouth and you could basically drink it so you're drinking chocolate bars and eating squashed up bread cheese and vegemite which is like through the bread because it's beautiful it's French culinary art, if there ever was.
1: And how how long would you push the consumption of a sandwich for? So obviously you'd, you'd make it on you'd make it on a Monday. You'd happily eat it on a Tuesday, but would you eat it on a Wednesday or Thursday? Sounds like a,
2: a shaggy song, actually. <laughs> um, I think I, not. I think I know. I forgot about some sandwiches I made. Um, after, I need to think where it was, after Warrakerna. And the same actually happened with some chocolate. So I made some sandwiches at Warrakerna, not Warrakerna man, Warburton. So at Warburton I made some sandwiches. That was about two days ago. I remember eating that in the last stretch. And I, so a good 48 hours. But like, I mean, it's basically toast because it's just, it gets so hot and stale. But I also had a chocolate that was in my bag for four days, that I ate in the finishing stretch, that had basically melted, solidified, melted, solidified, melted, solidified. So I'm not sure what the health effects are of that, but I reckon you can go through three melting and solidifications without getting too sick from a slab of chocolate also found that an sl- entire slab of chocolate makes you ride quite fast um, because you just feel so guilty even after um, even after 3000 k's you can have guilt issues over eating an entire slab of chocolate for supper but it's great for the motivation it gives you a good energy kick and a solid collapse about three hours later
1: <laughs> So did you, did you get have any time, I mean you mentioned the, the time out of Bullfinch uh, where it was a little bit scary. Did you have any other scary experiences out there? Were there times that you were scared?
2: One time I was getting like close to Sarah and I was a bit nervous that if I actually caught her I'd have to ride my bike faster. <laughs> that, that was pretty scary. No, was, in all seriousness, I, I never actually got that close to Sarah. I got within about two hours. But every time I got within two or three hours, I'd gone so deep that I was just like exploded in a roadhouse sleeping in a common room with like just my shorts on and frightening I think I was scary to truck drivers Um, no I was never it's funny I always felt safe Mm. even though I'd never like I had a whole lot of first like sleeping in the bush this was the first time I'd ever done that but I felt safe Mm. Um, even though I was poorly hidden behind a thorn tree Mm. Um, yeah I always felt safe but I did have a moment where I thought, okay, maybe I'm not safe from animals that jump across the road because I was going down a hill, funnily enough, just before bullfinch, where all good things happen. Um, and it was pitch black and dark, and uh, I, but I saw the, the, the moon was out, and I, I saw the shadow come suddenly from the left-hand side and felt a big thud across my back. I looked right, and I just saw a kangaroo scuttling off into the bush. So kangaroo had jumped across. I'm sure it wasn't malicious and kangaroos are nice, nice animals. But I was probably 30 centimetres away from being nicely floored by a kangaroo. Which would have been amazing for the next people who came through just to find a binky lying on the floor. Floored by a kangaroo. Going, oh, my, my ribs hurt a little bit right now. But after that I was a little bit more hesitant when uh, coming near animals. And. Uh, you know, Jesse and Sarah actually didn't help much either because they had mentioned magpies. Mm. So I felt okay about that in the desert, but for the first 1,000 Ks, which is effectively five days, every time I heard a bird, I went like this, um, which was really nice. Uh, I, I enjoyed being frightened of birds for five days. And lo and behold, I had my first magpie attack on the way to this. So... I was riding along Grange Road in, here in Melbourne, and um, I've, I mean, I'd even been told yesterday there's a magpie there. It will attack yeah. you. But I wanted to do it. a different part of the of the Bula- Yarra Boulevard. I was I was adamant. I saw saw this magpie though. Luckily, I, I, the sun was at a good angle for me, so the shadow was coming in front of me. But it gave me a good knock on the head. It's not it's not nearly as fun as everyone says. Came in <laughs> for a second go, and I just gave a quick quick little uh, Mm -hmm. wave of the first that didn't get quite so well the second time but got my first little I I assume they just go like this and like love tap you on the side of the helmet it's quite frightening Mm -hmm. no one needs that in their lives
1: so um, with the how did you enjoy the race aspect of this of this ride I mean because with race the rock you get a it's an amazing bike tour in itself Mm -hmm. you're doing it pretty quick but there's Mm -hmm. also the race component so you were You were chasing, chasing Sarah as well. So how did, how did the race aspect
2: go for you? The racing side of Race to the Rock, it should be called Ride to the Rock. If you race, you're in so much trouble. I want to say that, yeah. So the racing's funny because you can't race. You have to ride. So if you start, when you start racing, you're actually going over your, you might be pushing your limits a little bit too far. So maybe right at the end, you can start racing. But I found you really had to just moderate your own effort. So, I think I was probably, I was a little bit nervous of what was to come. I'd never gone that far or long or anything like that. So, but I'm really happy with the actual physical efforts that I made. And I, I made a conscious decision after um, after the first time Sarah left me um, to just ride my own pace and really try to rein it in, especially through Mandabidi. I realized it was really hard and my bike was heavy and it was, this was not like a normal Saturday bike ride. And so I really... Uh, yeah, I didn't want to go too hard through Mandabidi. I suppose it worked because like, I kept sort of moving forward in the field through Munda Biddy, I did finish Munda Biddy quite a long way behind Sarah, but um, I felt like I came out of that with strong legs. Mm. And then then we went to the stuff that I enjoy and that suits me a bit more, the open gravel roads, and then I could actually ride a bit harder. Mm. Um, but it's a complicated one in racing because, yeah, I mean, especially, you know, it's 12 days long. So if you spend eight days riding at someone else's speed, and that speed's a little bit faster than what you're capable of, all that's going to happen is you're going to end up in a heap on the side of the road, not finished. (coughs) Um, So I tried... I'm sad, didn't race at all until... Chuku Roadhouse. Then I raced a little bit. Then... um, Then I... When I left Chuku I knew that Sarah had... a good 100k... lead on me. Uh, Maybe even a little bit more and so i decided then that i was riding through warburton through the night and gonna try and make warrikerner um, what i didn't know is that warrikerner is on a different time zone um, i found out that very awkwardly about fa so i i gone through Warwick- i went through warburton and had nice chats with bobby and owen and caught up and found out about the world and the history of warburton which is very interesting I had a really good leg from Chukul to Warburton, actually. That's probably the best I felt the entire race. Um, And then I got going from Warburton to Warrakerna, and it was going well. That was a really hot day. That was... That was stupid hot, actually. The the first two days on the uh, Great Central Road were really hot, but that day was like 38 degrees and just dead. Um, And... I I was about five or six hours away from Warikurna. And I said to, so probably a hundred kilometers. And I said, I stopped a tourist and just asked them, just I wanted to confirm like what time the road is closed and that. And I asked the first car and they had no idea, which (coughs) was completely unhelpful. The second car stopped, said, oh no, we stayed there last night. Uh, They close at five, so let's call them the wife. And the passenger seat says, oh yeah, but don't forget they're in a different time zone. So all of a sudden, I didn't have six hours to get there, I had four and a half hours. <laughs> and so, now I really was racing, because I wasn't actually just racing to, to try to find Sarah on the road, I was racing to get somewhere where I could eat, because I'd already had a, ba- a bad mistake at Chuku, where just through bad planning, really, or actually just the speed that I rode, it wasn't even bad planning, it wasn't anything, I got there at seven. They were closed, so I had to stay there until 8.15 in the morning and when I could buy food and, and get going again, which was a long stop and I just wasn't willing to do that again. So I had to really push the last five or six hours to Warikurna, Um which, as anyone who was in the race will tell you, the last 10Ks to Werikuna are the most horrible 10Ks of road on this earth. It's not, not, not in Race to the Rock, not in Australia. Worst 10ks in the world. It's either sand this deep that just swallows your wheel, or rock. But basically, you have two choices. You can either walk on the road, or do there. There's slight like banks on the side of the road, and you can do a series of up the bank, down, stop, because the bank disappears for some reason and goes back into the road so you stop you get on the road you walk 10 meters and then you go back on the bank and it's the slowest progress ever and like i said 38 degrees because it was actually 3:30. they just decided that in, they want to live in a different world and make it 5 pm well it's like 3 and 4:30. so it's it's as hot as 3 you think it's 4 30. anyway i eventually got to warakona and um i walked in there like like the hobo that i was I smelt like i'd been I smelled like a hobo who had been urinated on by other hobos who only drink rum. And, I mean, I was a sight for sore eyes and blind people. But, I walked in there and it's like 38 degrees outside and, and there's just fridges. And I couldn't actually think much further than... Imagine how nice my feet will feel against the fridge. So I took my shoes off, emptied out the sand, made a sandcastle, and I just went and I sat against the ice cream fridge and I put my legs up like this against the food fridge and I just sat there for a minute and I said are you okay? and I was like I will be and I just sat there for five minutes and just let my feet get cold and then, and then I could think about the world again then I had a coke and a, a chocolate milk because um, the ice creams looked a bit dodgy I'm, I'm, I'm quite partial to an ice cream um, at the end of a ride but but the ice creams look special. And I, I shopped them out of house and I think, I don't know if Sarah or Jesse beat me at that one, but I, I got a solid $120 servo spend there, which I'm quite proud of. That's that's my peak spend. They, they did inflate their prices slightly, though, I must be safe, you know, too So I had my. Anyway, then I realized that I was completely bombed. With the heat and going you know, riding at a massive 115 heart rate had really uh, destroyed me. So I went and slept in their common room for about three hours, four hours, uh, and woke up, ate an entire box of cornflakes with with a mass, with this delightful, I just like dripped some water on it, just to make it moist. Um, So I had moist cornflakes for supper breakfast followed by two roast chicken sandwiches oh and no, I'd had the roast chicken sandwiches before the nap. Um, and then it was time to get going again. But I, I was so out of it that I decided that I was just gonna make my sandwiches on the way. And then thankfully at the last minute I said, no, Benki just put yourself towards yourself. You're not making sandwiches on the way. So I, I made my sandwiches and that's when I I was packing them and I realized I had two slabs of chocolate and a box of wor- a, a packet of worms. And I thought, this is perfect, it's 300 odd k's to go. There's 320 k's again from there. This is, these are going to be my rewards. So I packed very carefully that I'd have, like after 100 k's, I'd get a, I had the packet of worms. After 200 k's, I got to have a slab of chocolate, which was about supper time. And then at the finish because I I decided I was riding through like there was no more of this this was I was done I wasn't sleeping on the side of the road I was riding to the finish even if it meant finishing at 3 a.m in the morning uh, and then I knew at the finish there would be no food I didn't actually think there would even be people I thought it was going to be the biggest anticlimax of my life um, but I'd, I'd given myself a, another slab of chocolate for the finish line so I got to do some strategic packing and As it turned out, I was lazy AF for the first 100Ks of that ride. I found every excuse to not ride. My tracker batteries went flat. I convinced myself I could fix them. Couldn't, I had to go into Docker River. Uh, I was just finding every reason not to ride. I think I didn't, I didn't actually want the race to end. And I knew like, the more I pedaled, then I had to go back to reality and, you know, showering and brushing my teeth, other adult things. because I couldn't brush my teeth anymore because my hand was so bad that I couldn't actually hold my tiny toothbrush so I'd given up on dental hygiene um, which was unfortunate but yeah that was that was quite an interesting time of in life but I sat down with my sour uh, sat on the side of the road and I said you know what Benki I said this out loud just, just very quick I sat there I think I was channeling my father I said you know what Benki this is not good enough you need, you need to take, take this a bit more seriously, put some force on the pedals. Eat your sour worms, and then you can ride again. So that's what I did. I ate an entire packet of sour worms, or worms. I don't know, I can't remember if they were sour worms. I didn't have taste buds. Um, but I sat there, ate my worms, and then it was time to ride again. And then the chocolate really just kick-started that. Once I had my slab of chocolate to supper, I was all systems go. I was ra- raging into the night at 18 k's an hour and how did you so
1: what did you thinking back on this whole whole experience what did you what did you learnt out of it did you, did you learn anything out there?
2: Australia is hot also other more important stuff not, I mean it sounds deep and spiritual but I think when I realized that people are cool like, and here I am, a Sapphire, in a foreign country, literally in the most remote parts of a foreign country, likely the last thing that anyone would expect, the last person that anyone would expect to meet, and I had positive interactions with 100, well over a hundred people, from and different types of people, from city people, to Aboriginal communities, to truckers to tourists, any type of person that you can think of. Mm. So I think that it restores your faith in humanity a little bit. And when you just see how much people care, the fact that people give you water out of their car, like they'll actually get out of their car in the middle of nowhere, go into their caravan, that's on the back of the car, get water for you, share their water with you, you know. They're going somewhere that doesn't have a whole lot of water as well, but they will need to help you because you're the idiot riding your bike. And then I think also just the fact that this is where it gets a bit lame, like, you really can achieve that. Like, uh, I think the furthest, the furthest I'd ever ridden before was a thousand k's and some change over three days. The furthest I'd ever ridden in one stretch was 370 k's. Uh, I'd never slept outside before, for a night. I'd, never ridden a self-supported race and if you just put yourself in the situation and like jump in the deep end and and force yourself to swim you can overcome it and Jesse put it best it's it's constant problem solving and if you just take those five seconds just to think through and just think what you're actually capable of instead of what's in your way you can you can overcome that stuff that was it was quite empowering Getting to Menzies was probably the most empowering thing in my life because you just overcome all of these like multitude of difficulties and problems. And now you're at a point where everything that lay lay before you felt achievable. And even though there were sections after that that got hard, and got, got really, really difficult. Like you knew that you could overcome it. So I think that was the biggest thing is that None of us who did this race are exceptional. We're all just kind of normal people who just really enjoy this sort of masochistic um, sport. But you don't have to be like some superhero to do this. You just have to be willing to do it. You just have to actually say, you know what, like I'm not stopping, I don't care how hard it gets, how, how close I am to doing my MP, how I am from water, how dizzy I feel when I get off the bike. I'm um, actually, I'm finishing this, and and I think that that's something really cool. And just, mm-hmm. you can take into really anything in life. It's not about riding a bike. It's not about bikepacking across Australia. It's mm-hmm. just reminds you that things are achievable, and you don't have to you don't have to panic too much.
1: What did you? What was the feeling like when you when you finished?
2: What was going through your head? Hey, Jesse's mom. <laughs>
1: What the hell are
2: you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was
3: thinking.
2: I was like, You're not the press. It's <laughs> all <laughs> <laughs> my dad. I mean, we were on Global Cycling Network. Like, that's was pretty cool. So, but anyway. Um, the last, it was really nice. The last 40K were on, on bitumen on top, uh, which was really good because I was tired of concentrating. And it was really nice just to actually be able to process some definitely not all but some of the emotions of the last 12 days really the last three months you know I mean I think all, for all of us the build-up has been a long way um, yeah I think the last the last 10 K's I kind of let myself think about it think about the about the people who had encouraged me and sort of given me the confidence to to do this whether it be in the last three months or uh, I remember my fiance Michaela just saying just bloody do it you want to do it just go do it like don't don't think about it so much Um, you know I mean just so many other people in the last years of my life like do that but really just think about the last 12 days and what you've what you've accomplished and, you know, being selfish about the achievement because it's okay to be proud of what you've done. Mm. Um, it was quite overwhelming and I'm just really, really happy. I think, mm. like, you, you kind of know when you settle for that last leg, like you know you're going to finish because once you start a leg by the end of that, you, you know, that's that. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of when. But, I was just really happy. It was so cool having Jesse's mom there, because <laughs> like just to have someone there, just to like share the share the happiness with, rather than um, kind of running into a town by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it was. It was just really happy. I and mean, like, um, I, I think that, yeah, like I said, those last ten k's. You think of all the messages you'd receive over the previous days, all of the, the friendships that we'd made along the road. I mean, I was lucky in that some stage in the race, other than Jesse, thankfully actually other than Jesse, I rode with everyone. Um, so you know you think all those people and you kind of wonder where they are. It was, it was a pretty rad feeling. And it's a big thing to accomplish and I think for all of us it's quite hard to think what's next because what's next is always meant to be bigger and God help us if we find something bigger than uh, Race to the Rock. Cause that was just insane just absolutely mental like I can't imagine anything harder in this world so someone else will have to imagine it for us
1: <laughs> and so okay finally what would you what would you say to people who were thinking about doing this next year
2: don't No. I think I think you really need to know why you want to do it I think that's what we probably the most, is that all of us who finished, and I actually, I mean, I don't want to knock Adam because he had serious tendonitis in the road without a pedal for hundreds of kilometers. Um, no, but I think all of us that started and that went through the whole application process and put in all that effort, like, we knew why we wanted to be there. And I would say, if you're doing this, if you're entering Race to the Rock, to show how big your ego is, or as a measuring contest, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. If you're doing it to challenge yourself, to experience something, to find limits, to to learn more about yourself as a person and what you're capable of, um, and who you are, then those are the right reasons to do this race. I think think that's what's important. It's It's not something you do to try to be the fastest or to try to be the best at um i think yeah that's an important thing to remember and i i would just say prepare 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 prepare, prepare. because you can never know too much about the route. you can never know uh, too much about the terrain you know everything that that there is to know about the race go in there knowing so that there know as few surprises as possible there'll be a thousand things that you'll find out about the route as you're going but Preparation is everything. I mean, I'll I say 100% that I wasn't prepared enough, um, but I was lucky in that I could, you know, ask questions along the way, and, and, and I think I, I did some preparation as I was going. You know, for, you end up preparing for each leg by talking to people about what's coming up. But, yeah, most of all, just know why you want to do it, because if, if if you're just doing this because it, like it seems cool, It's not cool. Wearing the same chamois for 12 days is not cool. Smelling like you smell is not cool. Being that tight is not cool, but finishing is really cool. Um, So if you know why you want to do it um, and you're really secure in that, then do it. But make sure you've got that down before you even answer. Okay, Benki.
1: We'll let you get back to your lunch.
2: Yeah, I need this toasted cheese really bad. Yeah, you
1: need, it. you need it badly. Thanks again for your time and congratulations on getting through this beast.
2: Thank you for the race. My Love pleasure.
1: It. Cheers.
0: Okay, that was Kevin Benkenstein, Benkey, coming to you live from Maker Cafe in Richmond. Get down there if the weather's heating up too and check out their coffee sodas. They're, they're bloody good. Um Some remarkable stories there from Kevin. Uh, It was his first attempt at anything like this, and um, you know, really, that course was one of the toughest that's ever been attempted in racing of this type. And he he just sailed through. Um, Remarkable effort from him, and some incredible stories out there from from what he was pushed to. Um, Yeah, even even to the point of filling a bottle with his own urine. Um, Crazy stuff. Anyway, that's episode nine of the Race, Ride, Seek podcast. Um, Tune in again. We'll do another one of these sometime pretty soon.